Acts chapter 9, and we're just going to read the first 19 or so verses. Uh, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering all sorts of threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers or his disciples. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogue, eh, synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back to Jerusalem, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we miss it in our translation, but that bit there is not Greek. The, The name Saul isn't in Greek, it's the Aramaic spelling of it. And we actually read later that, that this voice was speaking Aramaic, uh, kind of the, the mother tongue it would have been for Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul uh, stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind, and so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he didn't eat or drink. Now, there was a believer, a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Oh, certainly, Lord. Certainly you must be joking. (laughs) But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the peoples of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized and afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. And it goes on a bit and he starts preaching in Damascus. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. Didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to, to the leading priests? A little bit later, this isn't on the screen, verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but this is about three years later-ish. But they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. And then Barnabas bought him and said, you know, I'll vouch for him. Barnabas, wonderful bloke. Uh, Without him, wow, a whole bunch of the New Testament might not have had the shape it has. Saul, 
is an interesting guy. And please forgive me if I call him Paul every now and again. It's really annoying that his name post-becoming a follower of Jesus is so similar to his name beforehand. I keep writing Paul and saying Paul when I should say Saul. Because at the moment, he's Saul. Saul is the kind of bloke that you would probably, if, if you were in high school, you'd, you'd put him in the yearbook as least likely to end up as a missionary for Christianity. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the, the most religious people you could find. He, he was the kind of man who would dot every I and cross every T. He would make sure that everything spiritually was in order. Uh, Acts chapter 22 verse 3, if you want to look it up, says to us that he was a student of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is an interesting guy. He appears in Acts chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, just flick back uh, just a little bit to uh, Acts chapter 5. And, and if you have a, a look through there, it's the story of, of Peter and John, and they've been arrested, and they've been taken before the priests, and... Um, they're facing all sorts of opposition. And now the, the people want to do something about them. And being a little bit upset, they want to do something drastic. But Gamaliel gets up and says, guys, uh, let's look at history, what happens. If uh, people keep rising up saying, I'm from God, and then they get crushed. Uh, God proves that they're not from God. So... If these apostles are making all this Jesus is alive stuff up, they'll soon just fizzle out and die like all pretenders do. But if they're not making it up, you're fighting against God, and so it's not clever to fight against God. God wins. And Gamaliel's quite convincing, and so rather than... He's so convincing that Peter and John are whipped. So they, the people in the... Pharisees were pretty angry in the Sadducees. They, they really didn't like Christians. But this is Paul's teacher. So Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, was this kind of bloke who would, who would say to everyone, you know, take it easy, calm down, you know, let's think about this logically, rationally, let's not, let's, let's, maybe we're going to fight against God. We don't want to do that. Paul, on the other hand, Paul's a firebrand. I've done it already. Paul. Saul. Saul is a firebrand. He is the kind of man, uh, you go over to Acts chapter 8 and you find Stephen, the first martyr, being killed. And Saul is the bloke there holding the coats of the, of the guys who are throwing the stones to kill Stephen for, for daring to be a Christian, for daring to see Jesus as risen and alive. And we read, in fact, in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, have a listen to this, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. It's not a Spanish Inquisition. It's a, g'day mate, I'm Saul, Heh. dragging you out. He probably didn't knock, he probably just burst the door in. He was not a nice bloke. If you were a Christian, a follower of the way of Jesus, you would not want a visit from Saul. He's gone through Jerusalem dragging people out of their homes. And now we meet him here in chapter 9, verse 1, and he's, he's still full of enthusiasm to do more. He is uttering threats with every breath. He's convinced that he is fighting for the honor of God. These, these so-called followers of the way claiming that Jesus is God, how dare they? 
and he will wipe them out and destroy them all. If you flick over to Acts chapter 26, verse 11, this is a pretty important story because it gets repeated three times in, in Acts. Acts chapter 26, verse 11 Uh, Paul says, many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Paul looks back at himself and goes, I was violently opposed to these guys. I had a raging fury. This month we've been looking at the grace of God. And grace is a concept that, that Saul would have known something about, but, but it's also a concept that, that stands at odds to the very structure of Saul's existence. Saul's life revolved around making sure that he was good enough for God. Following all the rules, doing all the right things, being faultless. And he was good at it. If you get a chance, have a read this afternoon of Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 3 to 7, uh, where, where Paul, and that's right that time, looks back and says, as far as the law is concerned, I was faultless. He was good at it. But the thing is, if you have worked to achieve your high status and standing, then by definition, you haven't got that by grace, it, it's wages. That, that's kind of obvious. But the problem with, with working to achieve our standing before God, having the right to stand before Him, is how do I know? How do I know that I've done enough? And us... Christians today can fall into the same trap of of trying to do good enough for God and we fall into the same quandary. How do I know when I've reached above the watermark? I wonder whether perhaps Paul's angry zealousness against the followers of the way stems from this. I mean, Paul, Saul, had had certain standards that he was sure everyone had to meet. And so he would do everything possible to make sure that everyone met these standards. And at the very least, by pointing out all those who didn't meet the standards, Paul was pointing out that he did meet the standards. If all those people were wrong, then he must be right. And surely God was looking down and going, I am so impressed with that Saul who is defending my honor. As if God can't defend himself. You know, still today we hear the same sort of attitude expressed. Um, You hear it sometimes when a natural disaster strikes. Oh, the reason that that country got hit by that is because they are godless and not following the laws of God. And the reason the crops are failing is because we've enacted this legislation which is against the will of God. 
And we get so-called Christians, perhaps even Christians, who head out to destroy those who they see as more evil than them. And I'm not just talking the extremes like people who murder abortionists. I'm, I'm talking Christians who head out to destroy other Christians because they don't agree with the same things that they agree with. Um, there's one, uh, probably the, the most obvious one that I've seen is Christians standing up and saying, if you don't believe exactly the same as I believe on creation, then you are destined to burn in hell. All rights to have a discussion, but, but as soon as you go in that, I've got a pecking order like that, we're back into Saul's territory. I mean, Saul obviously wasn't a Christian at this stage, but, but he was fighting not against Christians so much as against fellow Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was acting in ignorance. He, he really thought he was doing the right thing. But he was ignorant because he had steadfastly closed himself off to the truth. He refused to look at his life and say, well, maybe I've got it wrong. And so we meet him here in Acts chapter 9, heading off to Damascus uh, to go and find some more people to prove how much better he is than other people, to prove that he's okay, to you know, defend the honor of God. He's got the permission of the leading priests, and, and um, uh, probably most of them would be Sadducees, which the Pharisees don't like very much, but hey, he hates the Christians even more, so he'll go and get them. Uh, it's a distance of about 240 kilometers from Jerusalem to Damascus. Uh, for a bit of context, if you were to get onto your shoes right now and walk to Margaret River, it's about 217, 218 kilometers. So a little bit further walk than from here to Margaret River. It's a long way. It takes about a week, and it's towards the end of the journey, as they're getting close to Damascus, I imagine, that it happens. And, and we, we've heard the story. The bright line shines. Uh, Paul is confronted. Why are you persecuting me? And, well, who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And right there is grace. But there's grace in God not coming to Paul and saying, Oi, Paul, let's have words about this persecution. There's grace because God turns around and says, Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Saul. It, it's, it's almost exactly like Adam and Eve. You remember when we looked at that a while back in the garden? God's pretty much aware of what they've done. God's God. But he turns up and he says, well, where are you? What, what have you done? Have you eaten from this tree? It's the same thing. God comes to, to Saul and says, well, let's talk. I'm not here to accuse, I'm here to talk. He doesn't approach Saul in judgment any more than he approaches Adam and Eve in judgment. God knew why Saul was doing what he was doing. And actually, Saul knew why Saul was doing what he was doing. He probably hadn't thought to think about it enough. I mean, this isn't God going, gosh, I'm really curious why Saul's doing that. Better go ask him, why are you doing this, Saul? I mean, that, that sounds heretical, doesn't it? God arrives, and, and it's not about God figuring it out. It's about God going to Saul and saying, Saul, you need to stop and think through your motivations. You need to stop and think through your actions. It's Jesus graciously inviting Saul to reassess his life. And he does the same to us. 
He comes to us and says, I want you to look at your life and reassess the direction that you're going. I want you to, to reassess who you think I am. I mean, Paul, Saul, was so blinded by his laws and presuppositions that he just couldn't see that Jesus was God. And we can be the same. We, we can be blinded by our own presuppositions. And seeing Jesus, it, it would have been pretty hard for Saul to not go, gosh, maybe I better rethink things. But he could have. He could have decided, I'm not going to listen to this. Uh, have a listen to chapter 26, verse 19. This is Paul in front of King Agrippa. He says, so King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I obeyed that vision from heaven. He had the choice to obey or not to obey. There was only one real choice to make, but he could have chosen not to. Because of God's grace, Paul was able to choose. Because of God's grace, we are able to believe in Jesus, but I don't think Jesus forces us to trust him. That's not love if it's forced. But notice also that God's grace to Paul doesn't spring out of a void. If you have a look again at Acts chapter 26, uh, again Paul before King Agrippa telling the story from a slightly different angle. He says there in verse uh, 14 of chapter 26, We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. A um, little bit more colorful language, actually. That's a nice, you know, tidy translation. The language is more like it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a beautiful word, goad, but I had no idea what goad meant. Uh, pricking is what it means. It's hard to, for you, Paul, Saul, to fight against the prick in. It's hard for you to fight against the things that I am using to tame you. You see, God was at work in Saul's life even before the road to Damascus to tame him like one tames a wild ox or any wild animal for your service. And Saul was a wild animal at this stage. And the, the road to Damascus was the final straw that, that led him to reassess his life. And we're not told precisely what the, the other things were, what the goads were, what the things were that God was using to, to work on Saul before the stage. But we can, we can imagine some of them perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps uh, some of the goads were Paul's doubts. What if I haven't actually done enough for God? Maybe I have to go to Damascus because Jerusalem's not going to be quite enough and God's going to go, well, why didn't you go there? Uh, uh, uh. Perhaps it was his hopes that God was using. Wouldn't it be wonderful if my failings could be forgiven? Perhaps it was the death of the martyrs. Perhaps Saul had that face of Stephen as he was dying saying, Father, forgive them. 
Perhaps it was his own conscience. And we know from Romans chapter uh, uh, 5 onwards that Paul had some trouble with his, his conscience. Faultless before the law, but when he read about not coveting, all of a sudden he thought of all the things he wanted. But you know, there's another bit of amazing grace in this story. Jesus interrupts Saul's journey and looks at him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Most of the time, persecutors are those who have strength over their victims. The strong take advantage of the weak. The rich persecute the poor. And it certainly seemed like Saul and company were stronger than the Christians. They were able to arrest them and murder them. And it's certainly true that that the Christians in Damascus were not very keen on going near Saul. But the amazing thing is that God allowed Saul to persecute him. Even though God is God and ultimately the strongest being there is. And yet, Jesus turns the other cheek. Not in weakness, but in love. So that rather than wiping Saul out, he invites him in. And turns the man who was an enemy into an emissary of the good news. I mean, this is grace. This is God saying, I'm going to take those who are most opposed to me and I'm going to bring them into the fold. I mean, Saul thought that he was doing God a favor, that he was standing up for God, you know, defending God's honor because somehow God can't look after himself. But he was actually persecuting God. And it was Jesus who felt the pain. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Jesus really takes it seriously when he says that We are his body. Saul had got it seriously wrong. He was trying to win brownie points with God and in the end, he was bashing him up. God had every right to punish him, but instead God shows him the most incredible mercy. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 to 7, speaks of turning the other cheek, which I believe is what Jesus did for Saul. Doesn't mean that Jesus is a doormat. I mean, Jesus addresses Saul, challenges him, says, hey, let's deal with this problem. Jesus doesn't turn up and say, hey, Saul, you better stop it or you're going to be in trouble. He just says, Saul, mate, do you know what you're doing? He doesn't act out of revenge against Saul. He acts out of love for Saul and ultimately for us. 
And so having spoken with Saul, he sends him into the road, on the road further into Damascus. A uh, little bit of a side, we don't hear much about Saul's traveling companions. I'm willing to bet they were also of the let's kill all Christians vein. Uh, but they lead him by the hand into Damascus. Saul is there, he's, he's hungry, he's thirsty, but he is desperate to find out what is happening. I don't believe that Saul at this stage is a Christian. I think Saul at this stage is going, I need to figure this out. My whole life has been topsy-turvy. I'm blinded, and all of a sudden I realize how blind I am. And now, uh, what is happening? God, please deal with me. Forgive me. Save me. I'm so sorry, God. Jesus, uh, you must be there. God, I've, I've met you. You must be God. He's praying. He's looking for answers. He's trying to figure it all out. And as he prays, he has this vision that someone called Ananias is going to come and give him the sight. And, and Ananias is busy praying and he has the same vision. And you go, oh, wow, this is so amazing. It's fantastic. And then God says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And Ananias says, no, that's not a very good idea, God. I know Saul. And quite frankly, I'm not very keen on work, walking into the office of an SS officer. putting my hand up and saying, G'day, I'm the Jew sent from God to speak with you. And we laugh at how ridiculous that sounds, but that's the sort of thing we are looking at. That is exactly the horror that Ananias would have. Because even though Grace can reach everyone. We're not really sure. There's certain people we don't want to risk hanging out with. There's certain people that, quite frankly, we know a little bit about them, and so we won't accept them. Oh, you've become a Christian. How nice. Would you mind being a Christian somewhere else? Because I don't trust you. We, we treat them with suspicion. We'd rather them stay away. And this is an issue for people who've been in jail. And they come out of jail and they've served their time and they've become followers of Jesus maybe. Or hopefully uh, they're followers of Jesus. And, and then they come to the church and they say, God has met me and done something amazing in my life. And the church looks at them and says, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, we're not going to let the communion plate pass by you. Just, you know. Sometimes we act as if God's grace cannot change certain things on certain people. And we still live as if their past defines them. We refuse to trust them. I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage people to live in the light. But so often we are tempted like Ananias to treat people as if they never will. Ananias wanted to live in Saul's past. God said, no, I want you to live in the future of what I'm going to do through Saul. He's now part of the family. And Ananias didn't want to go, but he went. And you know, the first words he spoke to Saul was a word of grace. To the man who had come to arrest him, throw him into jail, possibly end in his execution if he didn't curse Jesus, which I'm willing to bet he wouldn't. Walks in and says, brother, 
and walks in and says, Brother Saul. Not, hello, scumbag. Brother. Saul had encountered God's grace and grace changes everything. I might not be as murderous as Saul, um, but just secretly between you, me and the doorpost, I'm just as vile as he is in my own way. But this is grace. God reaches out to each one of us and says, let's reassess. Let's look at where you are. Let's look at who I am. And let's move forward together. I claim you as my own. And God does this to us all the time. It's wonderful. And God calls us to do that with each other. To, to not keep living in each other's faults, in each other's past, but to live in God's grace. And yes, that means looking out for each other and saying, hey, I'm going to care for you enough to, to support and encourage you. But I'm also going to love you enough to go, you are family. No matter who you are or what you've done, because of Jesus, you and I are brothers and sisters. See, the past is the past and it can't be changed. Paul couldn't go back and undo the murders that he had a hand in. I bet he wished he could. But at no point in that road encounter does Jesus talk to Saul about the past. He talks about the present. Why are you persecuting me? And he talks about the future. Go and get instructions. The potter can and the potter will and the potter does still mold clay into whatever he wants it to be and that is grace. This is a huge story in the life of Paul. As I say, it's repeated three times in the book of Acts alone. Because this is Paul coming face to face with the grace of God. And people didn't like it. And an ice didn't like it. The people in the town were like, um, and the people in Jerusalem they all said, well, I'm not sure about this bloke. Isn't he the nutter who used to, you know, punch us in the street? Equivalent. And there will be people that come into our church who will go and will say, "How? I'm not sure that you're welcome here because we know something about your past. Yeah. But grace changes everything. We are a church of grace. We are a church where everyone who puts their trust in Jesus is welcome. And that's the way it's always meant to be and, and we can tell that because one of the biggest converts, the earliest biggest converts who wrote most of our Bible was a mass murderer. And God said, I want you even you are not too far gone so this is the church of those who are not too far gone 
If you feel you are, Jesus is meeting you today and saying, let's talk. Let's reassess who you are and who I am. And let's move forward.